what we do here is go back, 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 back. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered Tips, a podcast where myself, Kath, and my friend Rachel share in the struggles and successes of PhD life in the UK. Each episode will bring you updates from our lives in the lab, as well as discussing a topic relevant to PhD life in more depth. And this week is a very exciting week because we have our first ever guest. And today we're going to be interviewing a guy called Max, who is currently training to be a doctor and is heavily involved in patient advocacy in research. So stick around for that interview later in the pod. But first, let's find out how things are going. So it's kind of been a month, Rachel. How, how's the last month been um, for you? Very good question. <laughs> uh, it's been all right, I think. Um, yeah, I think, well, I've been doing stuff. Um, I've been on holiday, which Ooh. is good. Um, yeah, um, that was uh, yeah a really nice week off. So yeah, right, kind of ready to ready to get back to it afterwards. Um, yeah, it was it's it's funny because I I kind of yeah made an effort not to really not to do anything to do with work or like so um, I think that was really helpful in yeah coming getting ready to come back to things after. How are you? Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I um, also took a week off, um, same week Rachel took off, actually. Uh, coincidentally, um, I had a very restful week. I was feeling very ready to come back to the work. And then on the Saturday evening, of, like this is the sixth day I've been on holiday, uh, Saturday evening, I came down with a uh, neurovirus, so... <laughs> so sounds, yeah, sounds... Not- pretty rough really not a fun time um knocked all the energy I'd built up over the week out of me uh and ended up having to take a two extra days of sick leave um which I realized were pretty suspect because like the Monday when I emailed and saying I was sick was like the Monday after the men were in their like Euros final and I was like this looks so suspect like but I am actually really ill so um, <laughs> I am throwing up <laughs> yeah <laughs> I won't come into work plus I wanted to make sure I like was at least you know 48 hours clear of symptoms before I came back into the office and had a negative COVID test so it wasn't that but um yeah I'm feeling better now but all the energy I built up just like you're saying like are oh, you mm. ready to get back on top of things I just do not <laughs> oh, yeah well. yeah tell me about it <laughs> it's been weird it's weird isn't it I think I feel like my perspective since stuff's come back is kind of like I think I've been doing stuff but yeah uh, I think uh, kind of it'll be stuff that uh, informs like decisions like quite soon um Ooh. so kind of come to a, a point where I need to kind of decide just we need to decide a lot of things if you know what I mean um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's fine yeah um I was saying to Rachel before we start recording that I've been feeling a bit of an existential crisis about planning uh, <laughs> I just like I feel like I'm coming to the end of my second year and I don't have a handle on just how to like organize myself in a PhD um and I've got to be kind to myself like the pandemic I didn't really have to do any organizing and then like last year I had kind of what amounted to like a mental health crisis I wasn't really in the headspace of planning and then I've kind of muddled along in the last like six six months and then I don't know after my break I was like I really need to knuckle down and figure out what I'm doing what I'm aiming to do Mm. how I need to get better at staggering my experiments so I'm like more busy more of the time um, and getting data more quickly and um, yeah I think the other thing is was mentioned was I need to start thinking about how am I going to structure my paper and therefore like what figures do I want in that and therefore what experiments do I need to do to make sense for that um, mm. which is just yeah, I I was just like, I don't know. I didn't even know if I wanted a paper. That seems like a lot of effort. <laughs> it's funny you say that, like, um, yeah, that you were having such a tricky time last year just because 
from my memory of that time, like uh, we were chatting like pretty much once a week anyway, weren't we? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were like incredibly helpful to me at that time in kind of being like, uh, and kind of saying like, I guess like kind of, yeah, just a, it will be okay. <laughs> I don't know, I just like, maybe yeah. I was just yeah. telling myself that through telling you. Maybe. But anyway, I okay. find it helpful. So. Yeah. But um, it will be okay. Like, I'm out the other side of it and I'm definitely stronger for it. I just think, yeah, it was worth <laughs> Absolutely. I asked, I asked a colleague for some help about planning and they've been incredibly helpful. Um, so I'm giving their method a go for a few weeks mm -hmm. to see if I settle with it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of. It's kind of it's it's kind of cool that you were um, saying to me how different it is from undergrad planning because I I kind of agree I think a lot of things about postgrad stuff are different from undergrad stuff like <laughs> yeah planning is yeah I think that's probably one of them as well yeah, yeah it's like the requirement to be quite well planned but also ready to like flip everything on its on your head immediately like. It's like, oh, those cells aren't quite ready for that experiment. And that like has cascading effects over the next two weeks of your schedule, you know. So experiments wise, setting up some more pilot experiments and still optimizing my site off and hopefully well, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Are you um panel building at the moment? Is that what you're up to? Um <laughs> More like seeing what works and what, and then we'll decide what, what kind of uh, what kind of route to go down in terms of tissue prep. Um, yeah, I did find some antibodies that I might try. Uh, I might order and try um, from a paper that I really <laughs> should have looked at. Like, like I read it when I uh, when I when I got sent it, but like. I did not look at, you know, supplementary table two. <laughs> so, well, that, no, but that um, happens all the time, Rachel. Like, I read so, the papers that I cited in my lit review that I'm now like, oh, this is actually really useful. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I um, I looked more in depth at those, those antibodies and I think I'm, I, I might spend some money. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta do it. Well, I'm not my money to be honest. No. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I was like chatting with a, with my postdoc today about an experiment I'm setting up, and honestly, these organoid growth systems just so expensive. Like the amount of reagents you need just to grow. Like, oh, this is the thing I think. Right, yeah. everything is expensive. Yeah, and a lots of stuff is hard to study. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> just everything is everything is like everything is expensive and everything is hard to study <laughs> yeah that's so that's so it oh my gosh uh it's so funny though because she was like kath you're so cautious about like planning your experiments to make sure they're like as waste free as possible with reagents and they, they were talking about how there's some members of our lab who are like that who just like the way they mm. they like kind of do controls that are like over the top almost and that results in like excess reagent use and like I think it's just like be sensible about how you plan your controls so you're not like using tons and tons of reagents I guess but um I don't know we've had a big budget cut in our institute this year so that's like weighing on my mind as well because there is just less money going around and to be spent on reagents so um I think everyone in research is feeling that right now because of the pandemic obviously um yeah it's yeah. kind of hard it's kind of uh, affected everything really but yeah yeah um so yes the thing kind of looming on the horizon maybe for you but definitely for me is reports so i have my second year report due in end of august um i'm assuming you have a first year report at some point that's due in november yeah in november. take me I, on the horizon yeah how are you feeling about it i know it's for me, it was, I felt like my first year report was in way better shape than what I'm assuming will end up being in my second year report. But uh, do you feel like um, 
I don't know. Do you feel like you're already thinking about it or are you going to wait until maybe like um, a month or so before? I'm not thinking about it too much. Like I'm, I'm vaguely aware it's on the horizon. Um, yeah, I know that sort of there'll be people to kind of ask about it when, I, when I'm starting it and kind of, you know, uh, help along the way. So, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'll probably be, think, I'll be thinking about it a lot more in October, but... Uh, yeah, um, I guess I have a Viber as well, actually. So um, they get to decide whether I continue or not. So. Oh, if you've made it to the Viber, you're continuing. Like, <laughs> So uh, we'll see how that goes. But They um, usually tell you, like, pre-handing in the report if they intend for you to end up submitting that report as an MPhil, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm... Uh, yeah, I, actually, I, I haven't... It's kind of it's on the horizon. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a big it'll be kind of a big a big push to get it done uh, at the end. But um, other than that, it'll be okay. Yeah, because like luckily when I was writing mine, I didn't have anything else to do because it was like you know June <laughs> 2020. So <laughs> so lockdown. <laughs> I was like in lockdown, so I was like, I guess I'll just write my report then, and it was all like computational like I was the only person in my cohort that had kind of almost a full story because I'd like done everything from like data acquisition to like analysis like all in all on mm. the computer so like I had like a like what I know some people typically have at the end of their first year which is kind of like a little semi a small story that might build into their PhD but this year like all I've been doing for a year is like making very small changes to the same protocol so I'm not exactly sure how to write this up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm basically just, I've spent, when I have some free time, I write methods, but like, it's also just having to write it kind of mm. around my other words. There's actually a paper that um, I've been told about that was just looking at kind of, <laughs> it was a whole paper on kind of testing different antibodies in an antibody panel. And there were a whole section on, like an hour and a half at room temperature versus overnight at four degrees staining so yeah. like it, you can do it Catherine. I can do it I can do it yeah no um it's just it'll be fine um I just need to get knuckle down and write it because I'm assuming that Klaus needs to have read it before he signs off on it on August 30th so and it's now mm. The 21st of July and I have three pages of methods written and nothing else so um I spoke to Felix Felix said his whole report for second year was 11 pages including his references and title page so I don't think it needs to be all that long uh so it should be fine um he's not started writing his sounds third like, report. sounds like you have it in the back <laughs> yeah I mean it, I, I've already written it but based on Felix's love a third of it and it's just methods so there we go. <laughs> so, uh, hi Max, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're we're excited, pretty buzzing to have you on as our first guest. Um, yeah, we wanted to get Max on because he's my friend <laughs> but also because Say that more confidently, uh, he does Rachel. some really he does some really cool stuff and uh and has uh you know i find him a really cool guy to chat to about everything he does in science and how research impacts on patients cool. yeah so welcome um first thing first we feel like our listeners will probably want to know is who you are um and a bit about like what you currently do and then maybe your scientific background um if you want to share that with us yeah sure um hi everyone firstly thanks so much to Rachel and Kathy for having me on the show um so yeah my name is Max I'm 23 um and my story I guess this in this kind of aspect starts when I was 15 I was diagnosed with testicular cancer um and it was a kind of like six month journey through treatment um two big operations and some chemotherapy and then about seven years of follow-up now um and thankfully i'm in remission um 
and as I say, about seven years off. So most of my work since being sick has been thinking about how we can improve the experience of having cancer, especially for young people, mm-hmm. um, especially for that kind of 16 to 24 year old age range, which is a little bit under-recognized um, compared to children and compared to adults. So the patient advocacy work kind of began in 2016, um, so nearly five years ago now, which is scary in itself, but I was applying outside of uh, uni for some general stuff and I got a, I got an email from one of my consultants who looked after me who um, I do some charity work with. He said, I'd be really good to have a chat with you about what we can do in terms of advocacy work. And I hadn't really thought about it before. I hadn't heard of it before. And just to say to the listeners to kind of introduce the idea, I guess the kind of main aim of it is to ensure that all patients are included in the research that's done for them um, Mm. and that they're involved in designing it and producing it so that you can produce something that's actually going to help the population rather than what researchers think might help the population, which is probably slightly different. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the last five years or so have been mostly working towards kind of making sure that young people are properly involved in the research that goes on in the UK to do cancer research. Um, Most of my stuff is in testicular cancer because that's what I had and where my experience is most relevant, but I also work in other other parts of cancer as well and do a little bit more in children's stuff too. So that is me in about three or four minutes. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much um, for sharing. Um, So I guess like we are both researchers ourselves so it's really interesting to have this conversation with someone who's kind of been on both sides of the coin because not only have you been a patient but you have also done some of your own research from what I understand um so it's just great to have this conversation with you so the first uh thing we wanted to know is can you run us through some of the typical activities you get up to in patient advocacy I guess Mm -hmm. um yeah, sure. Um, so the majority of the work that patients can get involved with, and I think one of the things I'd like to do from today is make sure that anyone who's listening has been affected, and that doesn't have to be personal, it can be as a carer, or if you know someone who's been affected by cancer. What they can do is get involved in lots of different ways, and so most of the stuff that I do is to do with research, and it's things like grant funds, um, research design, dissemination work so going out to conferences and giving presentations giving a personal kind of um a personal experience kind of side to all the research that's done um in a particular set of groups so i think it's becoming much more accessible um and i think that's one thing that i'd really like to kind of emphasize today is that actually you don't need a big research background you don't need that much research interest even to be involved with this kind of work um my kind of the reason I think part of the reason why I got involved initially was because I was interested in cancer research and I wanted to kind of go into that career anyway um and I thought it might be a really nice kind of way to use my own personal experience in order to kind of a understand what cancer research is like just generally what the kind of field is like both kind of bench side stuff but also clinical work and the majority of stuff I do is clinical Um, but also be just to be able to help out, give back to my kind of community. Um, I, you know, if you can call it that, I think it was just a way of trying to make sure that I repaid a lot of the kind of debt I felt I had towards the people who looked after me. Um, so yeah, so most of the kind of activities are things like grant applications, you'll be reviewing those, understanding whether their grants, you know, if they're doing enough in terms of patient involvement in particular, but also are they asking research questions that are relevant to the population? Are they using designs that are actually um, applicable and kind of are going to be acceptable to patients? Are they going to be doing things in their research that might mean that patients might say no, especially in particular from different kind of populations? Like, you know, are they, for example, one of the things I've been trying to advertise quite a lot recently is making sure that everything is designed with a kind of um, cultural lens this kind of sensitive and understanding. So it's mm-hmm. really simple things that aren't really kind of put forward as much as I think they should be like making sure there's lots of different translations available for patient information seats and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of work I got up to mostly. It's mostly kind of quite actually quite dreary in some ways. Um, <laughs> just kind of lots of paperwork, but also trying to understand how we can best put patient voice forward. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, no, I think I thought that was really, really cool. Um, 
I guess, yeah, like, so what do you kind of most enjoy about about that kind of side of work? I guess you just said, yeah, it's the kind of downside is, yeah, it must feel like a lot of paperwork at times and everything. But, um, yeah, like, what, what actually are you, like, kind of, does anything about it, like, make you be like, oh, yeah, this is actually, I'm glad I'm doing this. Like, yeah. Or what do you, what do you learn most from it? Um, so that's quite a few questions there. So what do I, what do you most, start with? What do you most enjoy? What yeah. do I most enjoy? So I think the thing I most enjoy about patient advocacy work is, um, meeting others and learning how big the community is. I think one thing I was kind of struck by initially was, you know, it's particularly in young people's involvement. It's not, you know, it's not the usual for someone to want to get involved with kind of relatively, um, as I say, kind of um, screen-based, laptop-based kind of grant applications and things. I think if you're 16, you kind of want to avoid that kind of stuff, which is completely reasonable. But what I've learned over the last couple of years is that actually this community has become so much bigger and there's so many more people now who have access to the kind of advocacy work that I do. And it's made it so much more inclusive, so much more like um acceptable so much more enjoyable to just kind of be involved with all those young people who've experienced cancer or who've looked after people who've experienced cancer and to be involved with parents who've looked after their children who've had cancer and trying to understand what everyone's experience is like um i think it's really helped me you know as i, as I say i'm also a medical student i think it's helped me understand you know the patient experience in all of its breadth and depth but also more generally just it's made it so much more kind of um enjoyable and worthwhile and rewarding just being able to get to know all the other patients and parents who are involved with the work that we do because they all make a difference and they all add value to the kind of work that we we're producing at the moment so yeah it'd be good so what do you think like um most kind of patients care about then like what's kind of what's your what's your sense from that like when Mm -hmm. from talking to patients like what do you think I guess researchers should be paying attention to. Um, so I'm quite keen to start off my answer to that. So with the sense, like the idea that actually I think it, it varies for a lot of people. And I think if you ask lots of individuals, they'll, they'll all have a different answer. And I think the best way of kind of putting that into perspective was like a project we did a few years ago called the James Lind Alliance uh, Priority Setting Partnership. So if you look that up, if, you, if anyone who's listening wants to look that up, it was a project run by the National Institute for Health Research and it looks into lots of different disease types. So not like my project I was involved with was the Teenage and Adult Cancer Group, but you know, there's things ranging from kind of um, rheumatoid arthritis to you know, um, living, within, living with and beyond and survivorship kind of cancer stuff is one, one of the ones that's coming out now. It's a really brilliant project because what it's aiming to do is to understand exactly what everyone in the community and that's researchers, patients, clinicians, nurses, like what they all want from a research question. So it's really simple. You kind of send out to a, as, as diverse a pool of people involved with that disease as possible, including patients and parents and things. What is the primary research question you want answered over the next 10 years? And that's the one question you ask them and then they'll respond with whatever they feel like is important. Um, and then it's the job of the kind of steering group and um, who running that particular project, they'll then whittle that down from how many responses they get to a top 10 or a top 30 or however many they feel is important. And that top 10 then goes on hopefully to guide funding for the next 10 years because it shows this is exactly what is the most important part of the process. So for us in that pro- in that project, the Teenage Mutant Cancer Project, we thought going into it that there perhaps might be a little bit more a little bit more kind of emphasis on what you might expect maybe for cancer research as it's done now, which is finding new treatments, making sure they're less kind of toxic and, you know, especially things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy, making sure there's less side effects, making sure the treatments work better, increasing survival and all those kind of things. And actually when we asked patients and parents, and to be fair, this kind of made more sense to me looking at it from, from my perspective, the majority of the top 10 questions were on kind of much more kind of experiential stuff. So mm-hmm. things like the young, like I was involved with a few other young people on, on the steering group and they were all amazing people. Um, but one of the things we kind of argued for most was 
in the top 10, there has to be some point there to answer how we can better improve young people's mental health when they're going through cancer. And that went into the top 10. And equally, there was a top 10 point about how we can better improve bereavement services and end of life care for young people. Um, those kinds of things were like, are kind of are of, are of obvious importance, but I think within the cancer kind of, within the cancer research community, it's been slightly, um, bottled away into a kind of corner of saying that's relatively qualitative research and maybe it's not going to get as much funding as some of the bigger stuff like the clinical trials and, um, and the drug development, which, you know, and that's kind of recognizable, that's understandable, but it also means that we're not necessarily asking the right questions. Um, so for me, in terms of like understanding what's important, it's those kind of priority setting exercises that I think every researcher should be looking to, to say, you know, where, where am I going to be looking kind of to analyze exactly how I can improve patients experience of a particular disease if you're in translational research yeah I was just going to say like from I don't know about you Rachel but my experience as a researcher kind of patients are almost this forgotten stakeholder in how you're mm. driving your research it's very much like oh what's a hot topic with the publication cycle and um yeah. what's my group doing and like actually if I try and explain my project to a patient the title contains words they don't know mm. and I think it's what you're saying is something to really think about in that because it's it's really it's a project that's being funded by charity donations. So yeah, um, yeah, it's just really uh, moving and difficult and also challenging to hear, I guess, um, when yeah. I think about my own research. Yeah, sure, completely. Yeah, I think I think you're you're totally right, um, Matt. So like it's really interesting to hear how those questions were kind of almost that came up were like yeah very much experiential ones compared to actually um yeah I guess sort of not necessarily uh a very not 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 necessarily a very narrow like specific question but actually in terms of like thinking about just someone's experience going through that um because mm -hmm. ultimately yeah there is always um specifically in research funded by like charities i guess there is there are patients in mind so um yeah uh, it's making me realize like how much having them on like grant panels and everything is a super important having patients on grant panels is a super important yeah. thing because yeah how much and also a variety of patients right i guess <laughs> like yeah. you can't just have a, a group of patients who are all very similar on grant trials you want patients experiencing that specific thing who are different i guess as yeah, well completely completely mm. completely yeah yeah it's a really good point actually i think um one of the tricky things at the moment at least i think that the advocacy community or the advocacy kind of sphere is having to work on is thinking about how we can actually involve people who have those different kinds of experiences i think right now something I'm certainly um I've certainly benefited from as well is, is the fact that like we have to recognize there is a huge amount of privilege within a lot of the patient sphere and it's dominated by I think quite a lot of voices who already have a lot of social capital um mm -hmm. and so one of the things I'd like for listeners to take away from is to think about if you're doing any kind of patient involvement work um any starting point is a great starting point but maybe one of the questions I'd like people to ask themselves is are the people who I'm involving actually representative of the population of patients we're looking to serve? Um, just because at the moment I feel one of, well, one of the things I'm really trying to work hard on is making sure that more people, more young people in particular are involved in research and it isn't just run by people who have the social capital to be able to have that free time and, you know, um, are profiting from a lot of different things, not just their own enthusiasm if you know what I'm saying. Mm. So recognising that privilege and the people you involve is a really important part of part of the story, I think, not just for researchers, but also for the, any patients who are listening. I think it's important to recognise that and realise how we can make things more inclusive, definitely. Yeah. Diversity at all levels is required, basically, because mm. <laughs> it's not only lacking from a researching point, research point of view as well as a patient point of view. Yeah, it's pervasive, yeah. Yeah. Um, you were going to talk, I feel like I cut you off, but um, you kind of mentioned like research questions in mind that improve patient experience, but 
quite a few of our listeners might be basic science researchers. Yeah. Um, so how did they keep uh, that kind of end goal of moving from basic to translational to clinical um, in mind when they're designing research questions? Um, well, so that, that is a big question. I think one of the things that I would, I'd I like to emphasize at the start as well, that project I talked about before the JLA project, the 10th question in that top 10 questions was, how can we improve the drugs that we use and how can we better use science effectively to understand how to treat cancer in young people? So it is always important to patients. And I think you'll never have a patient, even if necessarily they might think that, you know, in our case, if you think the mental health stuff is more important in terms of the experience of the disease, you'll also then never have a patient or almost never have a patient who's then not keen to get involved with basic science research and, and like recognizing how you can you know better improve the drugs because we all also recognize that you know cure is what we want and um there's definitely kind of an avenue to pursue in terms of recognizing what treatments are available and understanding how cancer works so that we can get those treatments so i think like the involvement of patients in basic science is and certainly it's like an evolving area and that's something i'm really keen to look into um, I think within the UK, the kind of predominant feeling is that certainly to do with kind of cellular-based work, there isn't a huge amount of patient involvement because, as you said at the beginning, Kath, it's really tricky to explain to people if you've not got a science background how yeah. the, the kind of like intricate biology of what you're trying to deal with in, in you know, PhD-level research and things. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's really important. And I think it, the kind of science communication part of it is like, a, I think it needs to be done because patients should be involved in my view at every level because patients still have value in terms of answering the questions that you might feel are important. Um, but B, it's also important in terms of just developing that level of science communication that I think is a really important skill for all researchers to have. And it's just a really helpful way of understanding how you can best describe your project in kind of what we'd say is, I guess, quote unquote, lay terms. So I think it's a really positive thing. So where I would start in terms of like basic involvement is basic science involvement is not necessarily with a kind of um, patient on your project group who can then say like how to buy lab research. I don't think that's necessarily the way to do it. It's more trying to get together an institutional network um, of like patients who are involved on particular parts of the institution's work. So it's not necessarily something to do with your lab, but it might be to do something with the, with the group you work, sorry, the research building you work within saying we've got some patients who are really keen on the research that we do, really keen to A, advertise it and kind of disseminate results, but also B, to help us guide research and clinical stuff. Um, and then from there, patients will definitely get involved. It's about working with those groups of people to understand how you can best lead the kind of institutional work rather than necessarily something as focused as the lab or your research questions work. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So do you think um, having like... For like kind of like fostering close relationships almost between institutions and hospitals in a way would be a really good kind of would be a way to start doing that almost in terms of yeah, actually getting in touch with patients and stuff. Certainly. And I think the way I start by doing this is is it's not something I've seen, at least in the UK, I can't think of an example, but the closest thing I can think of is there's a lot of clinical trials units um in and around UK universities. Um, all those clinical trials units will have patients who are involved with the research that they conduct because it's kind of a requirement. And that group is therefore accessible to basic science research if anyone's looking out for it. So I think if anyone's listening from a UK research institute, I would look up what your local clinical trials network is. Um, and this, for, for, in most cases, it'll be something run by like Cancer Research UK. Um, and try and, to try and contact the people who run patient involvement within that clinical trials unit. And they might be able to help you if you've got some basic science questions you feel like you want patient involvement in with. Mm. I think it'd be a really positive thing to do. Um, that's probably where I would start at least. I'm always happy to help. That's really cool um, and a really good point. Um, so kind of thinking on that communication vein, um, mm. what have you learned most about communicating science to non-scientists? Um, so I kind of speak to um, myself. I'm not very good at it yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm very good at it either, to be honest. <laughs> it's one of those things where I get, um, there's this point that gets asked is that like implicitly, if a patient's asked to write a lay review or something like, you know, um, a lay person's have a chat for a clinical trial or whatever, 
then implicitly that that person will know how to write clearly. And it's not necessarily true. So at the start of what I was doing, like this is like when I was 18, I, I mean, I, A, didn't understand the research in the first place, but B, didn't understand how to write clearly. And so um, I think a lot of the stuff, like looking back, it was pretty rubbish, <laughs> but it was quite a steep learning curve. And um, I think it helped me with my degree as well, like trying to understand all the research stuff. But it, um, for me, in terms of explaining like clearly, I think there's probably two points. And one is like, I would try and find an angle like trying to find a way of presenting it so that it kind of makes logical sense with each sentence. Each sentence is adding a next step so that you can then say like from a very kind of like, you know, zero kind of understanding need that like zero um, or a priori kind of understanding. How can I then say like, how can I work towards developing a, a kind of like base for where the research question is started? Um, so this is like a rough example and kind of like, just thinking about what we've done before, like my bachelor's dissertation, which was with the with UCI with Rage, was um, it was really good fun, and it was with um, so um, Buzz Bams Lab, who's like Buzz now the um, Cambridge LMB, but we were at the LMCB in UCL, and um, the project was looking at cell division in patient-derived intestinal cancer. Um, and they were all noise that were grown in 3D. And what I've just tried to explain to you in a sentence there was like so many different technical terms, but I think the kind of angle I started to take first was when trying to think about how to describe it to other patients I was involved with, was thinking, okay, so you think about a cell and I think the majority of people know what cells are. They're just kind of like this thing, it's a very abstract thing. It's got like a bit on the outside and a bit in the middle and the bit in the middle has the DNA. And then there's a kind of, not really sure what else is going on. But actually, for my project, you didn't need to know much in the middle. You actually just needed to say that every cell, what we were interested in was how cell shape changed when the cell divided. So you just need to say the cell's got a shape. It changes all the time, depending on how the kind of the gut is moving and things. But actually, when the cell wants to become two, the cell has to become round so that it can kind of climb to the top and then separate at the top and then come back down again. So we wanted to know whether we could give any cancer drugs that could stop that from happening. Because if we stop cancer cells from dividing and we stop that cell shape change from happening, we can then say, maybe we found a new way of stopping cancer from spreading. Now, or stopping cancer from growing, sorry. So like, that's just like a very rough way of, of where I try to approach it from. Um, but I think it's about important. Like it's kind of important to think back to when you started your degree or when you started learning about this piece of work, like what would you have said about it? just from a kind of no base understanding and then try and think about where, where you were place that as your first sentence your abstract or introduction or whatever and then work on the sentences as you've learned them so that you can put together something that's clear and kind of understandable um i'm conscious that's not like a kind of very good rule of thumb but like maybe that is one way out that's kind of i'm just trying to describe how i kind of think about and how i approach it i'm probably doing that very unclearly ironically but um I don't know. I think that's probably where I would start. And that's been really useful for some of the work that we've been doing. Um, it's a really important part of what we do. So That's super. No, that's really, really, that's really cool. Really helpful. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I do, I like to miss the LMCB. I was like, oh, it was a good, <laughs> just like, it was a good place. It was, it was a good place. place. It was a great um, place. So it's like, which kind of leads me on to the next question. Um, being like, kind of what do you miss most about obviously we're still in the lab me and Katha mm. but but you're <laughs> you're you you've decided to do medicine um so yeah do you, like I guess you don't get in the lab as much or like what do you but what do you miss about it um so I miss I miss a lot about it I think when I started I had a, it was quite a steep learning curve um and I found it quite tricky at the beginning because I just wasn't sure what questions to ask, let alone what questions to answer, if you know what I mean. We're, not, we're still not sure. We're still yeah. not sure, and I'm two years yeah. in, so it's... <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, so I feel like it's kind of, yeah, a lot of a lot of learning was on the first few months, but then as I started settled into it, it was really, really good fun. Like, it's a real privilege, I think, to be able to kind of do that kind of work and you know, as I say, most of my stuff was cell biology and I was helped out by some amazing supervisors. Um, um, Shashila Ganguly, the P 
PhD student with the lab and a clinical researcher on the side. And then Helen Matthews, who's a, um, who was a postdoc and now gone off to lead her own lab in Sheffield. And they were both brilliant. Um, and they were just, yeah, just like super supervisors, I think. And it was really nice to be supported like that. And I miss that aspect of it. I miss that aspect of being able to come to someone and say like, oh, I've got this piece of work I'd like to work on. Do you think it's a good idea? And often they'll say no, but occasionally they say yes. And it's really <laughs> nice to like, um, it's really nice to get that, to get that kind of short piece of work out and that kind of like, kind of constant goal scoring, if you know what I mean, in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think with medicine, because it's all study-based and it's all book stuff. It's been, it's like, it feels less like you've got the short-term goals to work towards. And so you have to be a bit more kind of, um, protracted with what you're doing um, and a bit more kind of long game with it I suppose um, I still love it I really love studying at the moment it's really nice but I do there is definitely that aspect of kind of like short term kind of like next steps project process and progress that is I, I really enjoyed at least in my kind of one you know four or five months for the lab so it wasn't very long probably not long enough to guide any kind of research researchers who are listening <laughs> postdocs or phds who are listening I, that, that's I, not I really, why you're here though <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, i think that's like i think a lot of i don't know i think if you, you can sort of i remember like for, for me it would be like it was yeah it was my kind of first long-term bit in the lab and I was like uber uber I was just so keen yeah yeah <laughs> I was good. like I just want to do things yeah yeah definitely I was um, definitely a bit too keen I think yeah yeah I know and then it, it's weird right like you just it's it's weird coming at it like coming at it from a perspective of like having well still being in a lab now and kind of um yeah just mm-hmm. like thinking back it's weird thinking back at myself and being like I think I'm still quite keen now to be fair but you're very keen Rachel <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, yeah um you, you be, I feel like you could I, I feel there are less short-term goals in a P, PhD than there was in my undergraduate project at least yeah, so probably. you could at least feel take some solace in that I feel like there are a few far between short-term goals for me <laughs> right now uh, it's all a bit of a long slog but um, it's really interesting to hear experience um, do you think that having had a bit of research experience is going to impact you as a doctor um, oh yeah definitely yeah 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 um yeah, so like in terms of clinical stuff, um, I'm really keen on doing research as part of my clinical work. You can apply, so after med school in the UK, you do a thing called foundation program, just in case any, any listeners don't know, but you do a two year foundation program after you leave med school. And um, as part of that, you can apply for a special subset called the academic foundation program, which is just- I have a, heard of this. Yeah, and it's it, I think, small. so it's if anyone's if anyone's considering going, you can. I'm doing graduate entry medicine, so if you've done a degree before, um, it doesn't have to be you know a PhD. It can just be a bachelor's or anything. But I'd really recommend it as a way into medicine if you were thinking about it and you weren't thinking about it after leaving school. Um, but after doing that, you can come back to the foundation program, and um, the, for everyone doing the foundation program in the UK, you get six rotations so three in each year um and they'll usually be one year in one hospital one year in the next hospital but the academic group you can do five rotations clinically and then your sixth rotation will be your research rotation that's where you get to be involved with some kind of research it doesn't have to be prescriptive it can be cell biology it can be kind of animal work it can be clinical trials um, as long as you've got an idea about what you want to do and who you're going to be working with, you can apply. So um, I'm really keen on that idea and I'm really keen on doing some research and kind of long kind of, or longer term academic work alongside clinical work, just because I feel like um, it's been it's been really nice to get to know so many folks, patients especially within the kind of community. Um, and I've definitely got ideas in terms of how we can improve the way we work with patients in particular, but also just generally how we can kind of know what what I want to do in terms of research. So thinking about that, I really would like to carry on with it. Definitely. Um, We'll see. It's a long way away, but I think as at the moment, definitely it would be like on my list of things to do. 
all very exciting stuff. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to maybe ask on that vein of like you had so you said you had ideas of uh, what you wanted to kind of see improve or get better in terms of patient and researcher liaisons for the future. So maybe share a bit about some of your hopes for that. Um, like maybe in the short term, like maybe in the next five years in the long term, like 10, 15. I don't know if that's too vague. Yeah. 10 and 15 might be a bit much, but at the moment at least. Like, five. I think five. Five is good. Five is good. Um, so I think there's probably two angles. Um, one is probably more interesting to, to me and then one is probably more interesting to the listeners. One is um, thinking about how, again, as I say, we talked all, all day about patient involvement and stuff. And I think it's a really crucial part of not just clinical work, but it should be a part of basic science work too. And I think I'd really like the listeners to take away from today, not just um, some idea of what patient advocacy is, but that they should be trying to seek how they can kind of involve it if they do any kind of translational work um, and how they can better kind of adapt to the patient experience. Um, so that's certainly something I'm going to be working on if I do any research. And then the next thing I think is, just on all kind of more research basis, I guess, in terms of thinking about, you know, well, one of the nice things about doing patient advocacy work is that you get to go to nice conferences and things. Um, and if you're interested in research, it's a really good way of getting involved. Um, and with that, I think in terms of understanding where we can move forward, especially in terms of cancer research on a kind of cell biology basis, I think for me, the next important step will be thinking about how we can make 3D models work, um, not just animal models, um, but how we can really understand how, how to kind of best model cancers within a kind of 3D gel or within a 3D matrix so that you can then understand exactly the kind of structural. <laughs> we love the tape um, laugh. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, their, their stuff is really, really cool. And I think it is the kind of, it is where models are going to be going because I think it's going to be the best way of understanding exactly how an individual patient's cancer will respond to different treatments rather than necessarily kind of doing an ex vivo implantation to a mouse or something, which I think is, um, there's ethical quandaries to that as well as kind of physiological ones. If we can try and model something within a dish, I think that'll be a really, really interesting way of pursuing personalised medicine as well as kind of better understanding mm. of cancer biology too. Speaking yeah. of music to my ears, Max, because that's what I do. So. Oh, cool. <laughs> this is you, you have basically just recited cast projects. <laughs> my project is using, yeah, pancreatic organoids. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's interesting you mentioned, like, different models and stuff. I was actually recently at a conference where um, it was the there's a lab up in Glasgow that are making, like, they call them fly avatars of patient tumours, where mm. they, uh, like, sequence patient tumours and then knock out the relevant genes in Drosophila and then do a massive drug screen um, right. as a way right. to kind of, instead of, like, they're like, we've used the mouse for years. The mouse doesn't really produce useful drugs. Let's try something mm. different. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of really interesting to hear you say that. Um <laughs> But Max, how are you going to look at the spatial organisation of these tumours as a whole? <laughs> and that is for another day, I think. That's starting to get what we have to say. We're getting um, too technical. We're just going to have to grow a bit, like a. We're just, just going to have to grow. We're just going to have to like grow organs and then like I don't know somehow in vitro and then like put organoids like. I mean, our lab, our lab is working on uh, yeah, other than the spatial stuff. Our lab is working on like. Uh, co-culture models mm. in gels you know mm. which I think yeah. I agree is kind of something that's going to be really helping build that different um, newer future um, mm. we only have one more question um, which we thought was particularly pertinent for us to ask <laughs> um, which is do you plan on doing a PhD when you are a doctor like a clinical one yeah I do yeah um I, I don't know when that will be, um, but I, I'm planning on it, definitely. It's one of those things, so um, I didn't realise this was really an option until I got involved with the bachelor's stuff that I did, but um, Shashili, who was my supervisor, was um, a registrar in, in London whilst also doing her PhD. Um, and I just didn't realise that was an opportunity for any medics. I just thought that, we, that it was a closed door there, but actually seeing the way she worked and... Um, 
actually made it work. Was, yeah, really inspiring. So understanding how I can kind of repeat that would be really nice. And, and speaking candidly, to be honest, I think whether or not um, it's going to be decided on, like, paternity leave and things like that will also be a factor as well <laughs> speaking more into the future and things but um like yeah we'll have to see but i've definitely got it on the cards and it'd be really nice to do, mm. to do a phd at some point definitely. it's good to think about those things early though to be fair yeah yeah mm. so, that's great to hear we're happy you want to do more research um we're very biased towards research <laughs> Um, but I speak from having like clinical uh, PhD students and clinical fellows in my lab. They bring so much benefit to the group as a whole because they're never not in lab meeting being like, but what about the patient? Uh, so <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, really appreciate having them there. So you'll be a great asset to whatever group you do join eventually. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks for, thanks for chatting to us, Max. I've learned a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah i'm buzzing buzzing for you i think yeah it'll be so cool to chat again in five years yeah, time see what's happened. thanks so much for having me on guys i really appreciate it not, not hopefully i mean hopefully we'll chat before then but like yeah <laughs> i'm now gonna ignore you yeah. for five years <laughs> Maybe, and then i'll just message you out of one day yeah no um yeah <laughs> yeah it's super cool to chat to you uh, yeah you're, you're great max i find you super inspiring so cheers um, we want to give you an opportunity to share where people could reach you and find you online elsewhere if you want to, um, or signpost them somewhere else. This is your free uh, space to do yeah. that. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I guess so. The um, place I'm most active on is Twitter. So um, my handle is Max Williamson, and then followed by the letter M for Michael or for Max. Um, so Max Williamson M is my handle. If anyone wants to go follow. We'll put it in the show notes as well if people need to see it, um, along with maybe some of the other stuff you mentioned, um, just so people can get the sources. All right. Um, thanks so much, Max. This has been fascinating. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks very much, Max, for joining us. And I hope you guys found that uh, as interesting as, as we did. Um, yeah, it's been really cool to hear, hear what he has to say. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um, if you enjoyed this episode uh, why not share it with a friend um, we'd also appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening and while you're there why not rate and review because it really helps other people find our podcast who might find it interesting um, and if you'd like to hear more from us um, about upcoming episodes then give us a follow on twitter we're at unfiltered tips and if you have any questions or comments, you can always email us at um, unfiltertipspod at gmail.com. Uh, once again, we'd like to thank Max for joining us and thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye. What we do here is go back, 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 back.